Welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody. And today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming back a former co-host, Dr. Richard Nolthinius. Dr. Nolthinius, since it's been a while since you've co-hosted with me, I'd like to introduce you. Thank you. Before I introduce our bold guest. Uh, Rick, you are a member of the Earth Futures Institute with a specialty in economics at UC Santa Cruz, and you are also the chair of the astronomy department at Cabrillo College in Santa Cruz, California. Since 2009, you have shifted your focus to climate science and the human polycrisis and now teach a comprehensive course on climate change and its civilization context. By following climate crisis's threads, you have found no solution possible that neglects the deep causes for human behavior in virtually all areas. You state that solutions are not just a technological problem. And last but not least, Rick, you were a contributing chapter author in Climate Abandon. We're on the Endangered Species List, number one Amazon bestseller, a book that I edited and contributed to as well. Welcome back, Rick. I'm so glad you could join me today for this, I know, will be a thought-provoking program. Yes, thank you, Jill. That was a great introduction. Um, and I'd like to introduce our, our guest. Uh, who uh, not is- yet, not yet. Wait a minute, I'm going to introduce the topic of the show. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're so anxious. So You're anxious. ready to go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, just wanted to uh, welcome you and get started here. So our program today is called We Are Dying for Capitalism. Does money, big money fuel extinction? We are dying, literally, from capitalism. And if our species is to survive, we need a new abolitionist movement whose goal is to overturn capitalism and replace it with policies and politics that are designed to meet the needs of the many instead of the bottom lines of the few. A triangle of extinction, capitalism, environmental destruction, and war are creating an emergency that humanity as a whole has never faced before. Our interview guest, Dr. Charles Gerber, will tell us how runaway capitalism has brought us the brink of extinction and trace the history of how the U.S. became the leading capitalist power, including charting a way to a more hopeful future. We have big things to do. Now, Rick, would you like to introduce our guest? Okay, now, be glad go to. for it. Happy to. <laughs> Uh, Charles Derber is a professor of sociology at Boston College. He's written 26 books on politics, democracy, fascism, corporations, capitalism, climate change, war, culture wars. Gee, there's hardly anything he hasn't written about. <laughs> no. uh, culture and conversation and social change. Uh, and, of course, sociology really covers just about everything, mm-hmm. and it's uh, deeply important to trying to solve our, our polycrises. Mm-hmm. He writes for the New York Times, for the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, for Truthout, and other leading media. His books have been translated into 14 languages, and some of those books are Dying for Capitalism, Welcome to the Revolution, Moving Beyond Fear, Sociopathic Society, a People's Sociology of the United States, and finally, Capitalism, Should You Buy It, and many others that are a little bit older. Welcome, Charles. Glad to meet you. Hey, thank you. It's nice to be on this program. Well, thank you for being here. We are so honored. Dr. Derber, as you have said many times, we never have conversations about capitalism. 
And we're going to do that today. Uh, so we, <laughs> so to, yay. Yeah. We're going to talk about capitalism, and I've got the right co-host for it, too. So to begin with, just to start with that big question, um, of course, you can start wherever you like, but the big question on how has runaway capitalism brought us to the brink of extinction? Yeah, well, that is, um, I mean, I'm afraid the idea of polycrises is overwhelmingly, you know, compelling right now. And um, the, you mentioned in the run-up the triangle of extinction, which is kind of, I wish if we were visually here, you would see, and your listeners would see, a big triangle with capitalism maybe at the top, and military destruction down at one corner of the triangle and environmental death and destruction down at the other. And causal arrows go across all these, I mean, back and forth across all the points of the triangle. So, for example, capitalism inherently, systemically breeds um, environmental destruction. And reciprocally, environmental destruction breeds more runaway capitalism. The same could be said about capitalism and war um, in the genes of capitalism is the propensity to expand uh, by force when necessary to uh, get more resources, cheap labor, you know, conditions of production which are favorable to big companies. And, um, and of course, um, so, and then I think one of the problems with the discussion of um, climate change, broadly speaking, is that it's rarely looked at in terms of its intersections with war, which, you know, in a period where we're at, you know, on, you know, in the middle of some very ugly, violent, and dangerous conflicts, um, and in the middle of, a, you know, an escalating climate um, emergency, these two things are, not only are both tend to be discussed uh, independently of each other, they're, they're both discussed independently of capitalism. So, as you sort of suggested, Jill, in your run-up, um, my way of, I think, what I'm trying to contribute is helping people see the broad picture that all of these um, crises that we're confronting are intertwined with each other, which may make it seem even more hopeless in a sense. I, mean, I know one of the great problems of our age is that people feel the problems are so overwhelming that they can't, um, they can't possibly be confronted. And if I talk about this triangle, and if you come to believe that there's some merit to the idea that this triangle is operating, it seems even more overwhelming in some ways. But I do, and while it is overwhelming, I mean, there's no yeah. way of sugarcoating it, um, I do think uh, one of the things we try to do at the end of the book, um, I have a co-author from South Africa who grew up in a family very close to, um, an ANC family very close to Mandela. And so we end up talking about, as I think you pointed out also, the idea of a new abolitionism. Um, and we try to, since there's so much grim news here, important news, important to understand, um, we, we try to end the book showing that while you have to change, you know, you can't just use technology. I think, you know, one of you mentioned that the way that Americans particularly love to think about solving problems is simply changing the technology. Te technological yeah. innovation can Green solve growth, all problems. Techno, techno, techno will solve everything. 
Yeah, and that's particularly ingrained, I think, in the way Americans think about these problems. And you just get an electric car or, you know, you um, do recycling. or And these are all, these technological things are not unimportant. I'm not arguing that technology is not very important. But the the problem is that when you're a kind of techno-determinist and you sort of, you're Bill Gates and you say, um, you know, I'm going to generate the technology which is going to end poverty and change, um, you know, stop climate change and so forth. Um, it diverts public attention from the kind of social systems, our economic systems and our social systems, which are deeply driving both the technology itself and the outcomes of these um, emergencies yeah. that we're dealing with. And so. And yeah, those social uh, those social uh, norms that we're obeying really uh, ultimately come from a kind of natural selection competitiveness and one-upping the competition in your own species, I fear. Right. And this is why we don't seem to be trying very hard in trying to upseat the politicians and the corporations that buy them from doing what they're doing, even, even though it's wrecking the earth. Yeah. I wouldn't, I mean, I don't, what you said suggests sort of we're biologically wired for this competition and this competition is going to destroy us in the end. And I think of it, I mean, there may be some wiring of, I mean, I think of human nature as very plastic, very flexible. And you can live in cultures which are super competitive and economies that breed that competitiveness. And you can live in cultures that are much more cooperative and um, That's know, true. communal. And, and so what, I, what we're trying to do in the book is say that this is not simply a function of the way people are wired biologically. It's a function to a large degree of the social norms that, you know, drive our behavior, the values, and the, um, as you mentioned, I wrote an earlier book called Sociopathic Society, which argues this sort of paradoxical view that societies can be based on anti-social values. The dominant values of a society can, can be basically oriented toward actually destroying that society. Yeah. And there's a, just a lot of that in American capitalism, and in Dying for Capitalism, you know, capitalism breeds a kind of its own culture, which is around competition and, you know, wealth and getting rich. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it enshrines a set of values that are very associated with the American dream. But I don't see these as there may be a, a capacity for this biologically, but I'm wired necessarily to do this. We're, we're basically bred to do this by economic um, you know, powers and by cultural norms, which um, you know, the people who run our economy and the cultural institutions that are sort of associated with it have deeply bred inside of us um, and then diverting us to believe that all of the problems that we're struggling with today, these multiple crises of climate and war and so forth, are basically can be resolved through technology rather than through, you know, rather than what I see and what we are trying to argue in this book is the, the heart of the problem, which is the way our economic system is wired, you know, socially and economically, institutionally, and um, the way in which that drives, you know, crises like climate and war, which also drive each other. Um, so it's kind of an intersectional analysis. And it involves looking at big systems of power. And the reason it's not completely grim is because we try to show that historically 
Well, it's very hard to change um, large systemic forms of power. I mean, you know, if you look historically, there are periods where we've made relative, you know, significant change. I mean, the abolitionists were able to change slavery. And, you know, at the time, abolitionism in the late 18th century and early 19th century, people looked at the abolitionists and said, you guys are crazy. Slavery has been around for thousands of years, which was true. And they said, you're dreaming if you believe that you can ever create a world without slavery. And the abolitionists didn't totally end slavery, but, you know, they ended the slave system that the Confederacy, which is, by the way, a a kind of neo-fascism of of America that began very early. But they did succeed in, um, you know, tearing down some of the the foundations of that. So we do look at the book with a certain measure of um, sense of the incredible importance of believing that you can change even large systems. You know, the way this system sustains itself is by perpetrating a kind of fatalism and a belief um, you know, in what people call TINA, often T-I-N-A, which means there is no alternative. Sometimes it's <laughs> yeah. called mm-hmm. capitalist realism. Mm-hmm. The idea that if you're, you know, there's really no other. Fukuyama um, was saying this in the late 90s when he said, you know, history is over. We really can't think of any alternatives. Um, and Joe just started the program by saying, oh, finally we might have a conversation about capitalism. And I think she's right that it's kind of unusual to do that in the public square, so to speak, you know, because uh, the culture has just bred in us the idea um, that whatever problems capitalism has, and, you know, Americans do believe that capitalism is profoundly flawed. About 50% of Americans in polls over the last um, 10 years have said that they see major problems with capitalism. Well, and they also also don't... um see or know what the alternative would be. You are listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7, 89.5, 89.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen globally online from the ksqd.org website. Our topic today is We Are Dying for Capitalism. Does Big Money Fuel Extinction? And we, Dr. Richard Nolthenius and I, are speaking with Dr. Charles Derber, professor of sociology at Boston College and author of 26 books, the most recent of which is Dying for Capitalism, How Big Money Fuels Extinction and What We Can Do About It. I'm your host, Jill Cody. And we invite you to join us tomorrow at this time from 5 to 6 for Talk of the Bay here on K-Squid. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz. Christine Barrington is your host, and she has two parts. First, she'll interview Executive Director Matt DeYoung of the Santa Cruz Mountain Trails Stewardship, who have been creating and maintaining world-class trails in the Santa Cruz uh, State Parks since 1997. And then in the second half, she welcomes back ACLU Santa Cruz Chapter Director Peter Gelblum to discuss the Santa Cruz City Council response to the Police Department proposal to install automatic license plate readers at busy city intersections. Peter will share how the local ACLU chapter has been working to protect civil liberties in 2023. That's tomorrow on Talk of the Bay from 5 to 6 here on K-Squid. And now back to Jill, Richard, and guest. And we're back. This live Be Bold America show is edited into a podcast that's available for free on Apple, Google, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms, including YouTube and on the KSQD website. Please follow our podcast and share it with friends. 
That's how our show grows. And grow we did last year. Our listenership increased 213%, and the Be Bold America podcast is now heard in 10 countries, including the United States, of course. Thank you to all of you worldwide for your support, and keep spreading the word that this program discusses wide topics on democracy, the climate crisis, principle-centered living, and values truth above all else. So I am very pleased that you are listening. Rick, now I know you have a big question. Take it away. <laughs> well, well, first of all, I'd like to pay a couple of compliments to our guests. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, so first of all, I love the way you highlighted the value of Frederick Douglass in your book, because he's one of mm-hmm. my one of my great heroes, and not mm-hmm. only in content and in oratory, but his style and his appreciation mm-hmm. that a certain pugnaciousness uh, is required today. And in fact, I mm-hmm. find that to be a problem with some progressives, as they're a little bit too nice, a little bit too timid. <laughs> and unfortunately, that lets other people think that, oh, well, I guess uh-huh. they're having a, a reasoned conversation, and it's all above my head, so I don't know, I'll just wait till they're all done, and then I'll you know, decide what to do then, right. which just... <laughs> You know, kicks the can down the road. Okay, but the other the the other compliment I wanted to pay you is that uh, I have co-hosted here before, and I'm used to having to pick a bone over X, Y, and Z. But I found I haven't really found anything I can pick a bone with you about. Um, <laughs> he liked your book thing, very much, Doctor Durber. Yeah, I liked your book. Uh, I'm enormously. really happy to hear that. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're not going mean, to tussle. <laughs> Uh, Jill, I just want to add one thing, yes. a footnote to what you said. Um, you said, yes, people have very large questions these days about capitalism when they look at a world where, you know, 10 people, 10 billionaires have more money than, you know, over 175 million, over half of the population and so forth. Um, but, you know, just on a slightly more positive note, when you ask um, people, what do you think of a possibility of a different kind of economy, and specifically, if you ask people, what is your thought about whether some kind of socialism or a more collectively oriented society than capitalism is um, possible, you get a very strong positive response. And I think it's true that people are not really clear. You know, when Bernie Sanders talked about democratic socialism, he says he's talking about Denmark, and a lot of people think, oh, they're talking about the kind of welfare state that Europe is promoting. And I think, you know, there are important differences between capitalism in the United States and capitalism in Europe, which are reflected in the fact that America, for example, produces much more climate you know, emissions than most European countries do. And, of course, it's much more militaristic than um, than most European countries have been since World War II. And that, that sort of reinforces the triangle of extinction, the idea that if you have the kind of runaway, sort of unregulated, neoliberal capitalism that Ronald Reagan really ushered in full scale in the 1980s, and Maggie Thatcher did the same, and then people like Fukuyama came along and said, there is no alternative. This runaway capitalism yeah. is the only way. Well, the elite of both parties have bought into this quite a lot, but the, um, you know, ordinary people are having too many problems to completely buy into it. I mean, there is a lot of buying into it, which is grim, 
Um, because yeah, I wanted to ask you actually what you thought, uh, what your working definition of capitalism is. It's a it's a kind of a wrapper word that's been tossed around in different contexts, right. and you know, Ayn well, Rand might say one thing and somebody else say something different, right. and there's everything in between. So, could you clarify well, that for our great, listeners? Yeah, it's a great question actually because it's it's a complicated question. But you know, just to bring it down to very straightforward basics. I think of capitalism as um, a system which says we don't need public goods, meaning anything produced that is not produced for the market um, by private companies and for profit, Um, that if we create a society which is organized only around production, um, everything for sale, everything that is produced that has value should be produced on the market by large or small corporations and sold for profit. And that means that everything else that might be necessary, um, anything that government might have to step in on because it's not profitable, whether it's a vaccine for a public health emergency that only comes every half century or so, or whether it's basic medical care or higher education that is so, expensive. So, Dr. Like, Derber, um, does that, yes. just to interrupt for a second, then you can't sure. back, but does that mean there would be no such thing as democratic commons? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, actually. Capitalism is the successful enclosure of the commons, uh-huh. right? That in the 18th century, you know, the land, a lot of land was held in common, and people were able to farm it and produce a lot for themselves. And um, when, you know, the, you know, the nobility of class of the Middle Ages was breaking down and the primature was, prim, prim, primogenitor was taking younger sons who couldn't, you know, inherit the fortune, and they had to basically take over the land and put it to work for their own new mercantile and capitalist venture. So that was the beginning of taking away commons, you know, land that was held in common for public gardens, public, you know, food, and enclosing it. And, um, and of course, the, the fallacy is that uh, commons, there are some commons you just can't enclose, like the atmosphere we breathe and yeah. the oceans that circle the globe. Right, and right. trying but to privatize those. It all. Capitalism treats everything um, as if it can be enclosed. Um, they even want to, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering how the Chicago boys, who are the kind of Ayn Rand, you know, extreme free market neoliberal capitalists, they talk about, well, family relationships should be seen as market-based. So you should be, be able to buy and sell children in a family on the market. I mean, Ernest Becker, a Chicago economist, won a Nobel Prize writing that, that kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the well, air wait a minute. and the water... Wait a minute. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I'm serious. It, and a, a they, Nobel they Prize in economics? That, yeah, they, well, Becker, oh my God. a Chicago economist, argued that family, like everything, should be understood as something sort of um, organized on market principles, which means since market principles are the idea that everything is best organized when it can be bought or sold on the market. It would imply that, you know, and we use that in language. We talk about dating markets or being on the market when on relationships. It's quite easy in this culture to make um, love relationships commodified in some way. I mean, that's, that's what, when Jill asked me what is capitalism, it seems to me it's the effort to, to reduce all social relationships and all social activity to market activity, to basically 
um, to, to take, make everything a market transaction driven by interest. I mean, you mentioned Anne Rand, who said wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness, saying the best, the best world, one where people are perfectly self-interested in the market. And if you try to make as much as you can for yourself in the market, Adam Smith's invisible hand will ensure that the collective good is is accomplished. And it seems to me, Jill, when you said, what is, isn't there a connection between capitalism and the commons? I think that's a really good, clear, simple way of putting it, that capitalism is the effort to totally enclose the commons. So then we you know, wouldn't have uh, democracy. What would we have? I mean, they compl- if they completely encapitalize the, the democratic commons, then what, what do we have? Well, you know, capitalism does not produce a very... Um, I'm actually doing a new book on capitalism and democracy, which will be out oh. in March. But <laughs> I look forward history, to that one. <laughs> <laughs> the whole history, if you look at the history of the United States, um, has been so compromised by both class, class power, and caste power, which are the two basic in, you know, systemic impediments to real democracy. The, the class structure, which concentrates enormous amounts of money in a small group of people who are able to then convert that into political capital and power. Um, and it concentrates, and the caste system, which takes race and gender and other, you know, biologically based um, hierarchies and concentrates power um, in those systems, which generally lead toward neo-fascist kinds of racial or uh, racially based um, hierarchies of power. Shouldn't so, yeah, we be trying to maximize the the actual happiness, I mean, the true happiness of of society, of people, of, of really everyone in some properly weighted way, as opposed to what the neoclassical economists do, which is try to maximize GDP spending. doesn't matter whether it's for good or for evil, whether it's for repairing second-law yeah. decay or whether it's for actual production. Which is absurd. I I think that um, the answer to that question is that capitalism survives with a culture that indoctrinates people with the idea that nothing gives you more happiness than doing well on the market. I mean, there was a study of um, young girls. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I remember reading a study some years ago of what teenage girls found gave them most happiness. And it was, you know, going to the mall and shopping um, became a very big um, thing. And today, it might be an argument where you compete. This goes back to your discussion of being wired for competition. You know, social media, I find my students are miserable because they're trying to find happiness in gaining attention um, on social media and they've learned that it's kind of a di- the kind of same addiction that we have for commodities that's driving the climate crisis, right? It's the fact that people believe that their happiness is tied to accumulation of stuff, of what they're, they they're have. They're not making a distinction between happiness and short-term craving. It, it, yeah. we, we're, we're not rational people too much. I mean, it seems to me that what capitalism does both in terms of institutional corporations, which are driven by short-term capital markets and therefore operate on very short-term financial horizons. And then that drives workers and consumers into their own very short-term horizons 
of happiness, you know, because yeah. you're living in a precarious situation. And when you're when you feel, you know, they talk now about the working classes as the precariat, um, meaning people who are living on the margin and precariously. When you're living precariously, you don't have the luxury of thinking long term. You're thinking about how are you going to make it tomorrow. And there are millions that, you know, when Biden wonders... Which is a good so reason to keep people, him there. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's what capitalism does, of course. It yeah. keeps people on the precipice, on where people have to worry on a day-to-day basis about what the tomorrow is going to bring. And, you know, there are about, what is it, about 40 to 50 percent of Americans say that they're one illness or, you know, one layoff away from thinking. We don't have a good, that's one of the distinctions with the European models. We don't have any kind of robust safety nets, and looks like um, our new uh, Republican majority in the House is about ready to cut off Obamacare and Social Security, which is not new at all, of course. It's just part of the long capitalist imperative. I think I I read somewhere that a lot of people are uh, just $400 away from Bankruptcy. I mean, they're living so closely. You are listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7, 89.5, and 89.7 FM. Many voices, one station, listen globally online from the ksqd.org website. Our topic today is, are we dying for capitalism? Does big money fuel extinction? And we are speaking with Dr. Charles Derber, who writes for and has been reviewed in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, Truthout, and other leading media. And his books have been translated in 14 languages. We will be right back after Jim Hightower's commentary titled, Why Supreme Court Ethics is an Oxymoron. Let me be blunt. The problem with today's Supreme Court is that it consists of too many 5-watt bulbs sitting in 100-watt sockets. While most of the nine members are assumed to be brilliant, smart is as smart does, and this court's right-wing majority wallows in stupid, consistently pushing plutocracy, autocracy, and theocracy over the democratic will of the people. Compounding this stupidity, many of the judges have flagrantly accepted gifts of cash, luxury vacations, and other freebies from the corporate and right-wing interests that have benefited from the court's rulings. Yet, caught red-handed, the narcissistic jurists assert that we the people should just trust their integrity. These nine legal power brokers, who pose as America's arbiters of justice, have even exempted themselves from having an ethics code, allowing each one to make up their own unwritten ethical rules. Thus, corruption flourishes, so the public, Congress, and the media have finally demanded that at the very least the eminences be subjected to basic ethics. Okay, okay, the nine finally grumped, we'll sign on to a code. But their acquiescence included a killer gotcha. They would write their own rules of behavior. Sure enough, their 14-page code is a toothless watchdog with no bark, much less bite. It starts by snarling that the great unwashed simply failed to understand that the entire court is, as the Chief Justice had earlier proclaimed, jurists of exceptional integrity. So the new code promises boilerplate ethical behavior but provides no enforcement mechanism beyond claiming the judges will police each other. This is Jim Hightower saying, if these brilliant lawyers can't or won't write a straightforward code of judicial ethics, why should we trust them to render justice for us? To help democratize this third branch of our government, go to fixthecourt.com. 
The Hightower Radio Lowdown is made possible by you subscribers to Jim Hightower's Lowdown on Substack. Find us at jimhightower.substack.com. If you are just joining us, our topic today is, are we are dying from capitalism, does big money fuel extinction? And our bold guest is Dr. Charles Derber. Please look for his other books, such as Moving Beyond Fear, Sociopathic Society, and Capitalism, Should You Buy It? Dr. Derber, in the commentary, uh, Jim Hightower mentioned this court's right-wing majority wallows and stupid, <laughs> consistently pushing plutocracy, autocracy, and theocracy over the democratic will of the people. After hearing his commentary, did any thoughts or reactions come to mind, especially how they might relate to dying for capitalism? Yeah, I think it's, I don't think actually, I mean, I'm a big fan of Hightower, but um, to just call it stupid, I think, is to <laughs> distract from the the way in which, you know, things are organized by our economic system and political system. To in- I mean, the people that are sitting on the Supreme Court are there because literally billions of dollars were organized by the Federalist Society and by the companies that support them. Uh, they had a very clear agenda, which is... You know, you can read it in the Federalist Society um, publications, which they're now implementing. And much of it is much around the subject material we're talking about. It's it's to stripping away all of the regulatory public kinds of uh, sort of things that government or communities or publics can do to rein in the extractive, exploitative appetites and addictions that capitalism breeds. So, you know, right now the Supreme Court is sitting on, as you know, uh, cases about regulatory, um, the constitutionality. Yes, I wanted to ask you about regulation. that. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's sort of like a perfect capitalist kind of, um, it's sort of like, it's, this is not about stupidity. This is about locking into the constitutional system um, a set of rules about what can be done to regulate market excesses, um, externalities to the market, which you might say climate change is a massive, or war is a massive externality. An externality just being a cost of market transactions that the, the people who produce the cost don't have to bear, but the, you know, down the road, if you put a factory pollutes, the cost is externalized to the people who get sick from the pollution, drinking the water down the, but the, the factory polluting doesn't have to pay. So the court right now, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up. It's from Hightower. It's a perfect example of how capitalism quietly, you know, most people don't know about the institutional networks which have driven all this money in a very concerted way over many decades into exactly what we're dealing with on the court now. The court, by the way, is very, very important. I mean, the the whole, I don't know if you guys know this, but back in the, before the Civil War, um, the, the corporation was understood as a public entity. It was chartered. You know, corporations are chartered in states. Yes, and then it got right. personhood. <laughs> it got personhood after the Civil War when the, the Supreme Court was, you know, brought to bear by um, the new robber barons, who were basically one of the biggest revolutions they did was take over the Supreme Court in the same way that the the capitalist powers are doing today. And, yeah, they they completely changed 
the idea of what a corporation is. You know, if you had had a corporation which was, before the Civil War, was understood as a public entity created by the people and for the people, and they had to be accountable to the people. So, for example, um, corporations were chartered to be reviewed every 10 years, particularly banks in states like Pennsylvania, and it was the legislators had to... Uh, see, they had to prove, the company had to prove to the legislature that they were producing a public good. They could produce profit, but the fundamental imperative constitutionally of the corporation was to prove they were improving the public good. What the robber barons did in the late 19th century, you know, Carnegie and, you know, J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller, is they produced the Supreme Court which rechartered and gave essentially what we now call personhood to the corporation, which said basically it was a revolution in constitutional thinking, which said that the corporation is really simply um, a private contract, purely market-based contract between investors and executives. And the only constitutional obligation and imperative of the corporation is to maximize return to the investors of this private contract. So, you know, what we're seeing... Money return. (laughs) An advanced phase of this in what Hightower was talking about, which is that the whole ability, let's say, of the New Deal, which was based on and the European model of capitalism, which has been much less climate oppressive and less militaristically oppressive over the last 50 years than the American model, is they're, they're trying to totally make that kind of regulatory capital, even that kind of very limited kind of regulatory capitalism, unconstitutional. And apparently, from what I'm reading from the lawfare experts, is that it's quite possible that in the next couple of months, the court is going to basically... Uh, you know, make it unconstitutional for the Food and Drug Administration to rule that, you know, drugs are dangerous or for, the you know, the EPA to, you know, make pronouncements and regulations about emissions and so forth. So we're on the threshold of another capitalist kind of revolution, in, in, you know, in the judicial and, and it would be the worst yet. And it's coming it very the- soon, as you said, in months. And I've, I've said on this show a couple of times that if a corporation was a person, it'd be a psychopath, because they can't show compassion, humility, or empathy. So we're being governed by... Sociopathic psychopaths. Exactly. Exactly. I've been saying this for years. Even if if you have people who are lovely people, I mean, I'm sure many executives are good people in the sense of um, they, you know, the problem is not simply the psychology of people. It's the fact that just what we talked about, The system has rules, and one of the rules, no matter if you're a sweet, kind, gentle person or you're, you know, a competitive, you know, you know, bastard, the the same behavior is required. You have to legally respond by maximizing return of investors. It's not your. This is your fiduciary obligation, meaning the investors can sue you if you act like a nice person, and and if you are a nice person, in the end. You're going to be sued, you know, because the constitutional obligation is to maximize return to investment. And yet those CEOs could be twisting the arms of their legislators in the smoke-filled rooms and saying, we don't want to be considered psychopaths in the future. You're going to change the laws, but you're going to make it a level playing field so that we can all still play. But you're going to make this actually for good and not for what it's become. Yeah. But But they don't. Yeah, because... 
who are these politicians? They're people who are, you know, it takes a lot of money. Bought and paid for. Chillins and Page, 2014, as you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, this is where the, all these systems are intertwined, the economic system, you know, Jill was talking about democracy and capitalism. And the presumption in, you know, American history has always been that capitalism, you know, the market is, you know, this is what people like Milton Friedman and the fundamental theorists of, of um, you know, free market capitalism say, that the market is free, the government is coercive, and so we can have only have freedom and um, democracy in a, in a capitalist system. Well, you know, basically... The problem is that the, when, when markets concentrate money at the level that they do today, which is just overwhelming, I mean, the amount of concentration of capital and wealth in a very small elite of people, um, and those people are highly politicized. They're the people who are corrupting the court. They're the people who are lobbying Congress on everything related to health and um, climate and so you know, and the military, not to mention the military. You know, in the book, I go into some detail at looking at the companies that constitute the military-industrial complex and the carbon-industrial complex, which are the energy companies and other companies that are, you know, structurally so deeply embedded in, you know, drill, baby, drill, that you simply will never get them out. They, they keep talking a good line about, you know, many forms of energy, but they are, in fact, leaning in. Just enough to greenwash and no more. Yeah, exactly. And when we're seeing evidence of that more and more. And so, again, people like like to think about a green capitalism because they're thinking in these technological terms. They're saying, well, capitalism is going to solve climate change because it's the most innovative system and the, the solution to capitalism is better technology. I mean, to climate change is better technology. That's where the, the intellectual kind of problem is, right, that somehow the idea that capitalism is going to produce technology which is going to solve climate overlooks the entire systemic, you know, force of capitalism, which is insatiably addicted to subjecting more and more of the planet to, you know, absolute extraction of, of resources, um, you know, taking land, um, changing everything on the planet into a market commodity that can be sold for profit. And, you know, the problem is short term we live profit. on a finite planet. Yeah, we live on a finite planet, and capitalism is a system based on insatiable, infinite appetite and yeah. desire. Yeah, I want to point out that neoclassical economists have insisted on applying a discount rate which originally was formulated part of the hotling rule as a way of maximizing value return for a finite resource in a finite lifetime in other words for an individual and and now they have taken that and applied it to civilization which of course doesn't have a death date at least not one that we you know unless that's what by their design Right. It's, so, it's completely sociopathic. Yeah. That's really an important idea. I've written yeah. about that. People should really look at my PowerPoints that I gave to the Earth Futures Institute last year. Yeah, uh, I hope you'll I, have a chance to look at them too, Charles. Yeah, I will look at it. And um, I want to say again, just in terms of thinking about alternatives to capitalism, when Jill said, well, people don't know what that right. she, she's right. Right. What else but could there be? Let me, let me just say, you know, there's one thing 
that's sort of becoming more obvious, which is that um, the rich don't actually live by capitalism. They, the largest system of welfare, government you know, subsidy and government organization, is um, the corporate welfare system. Yeah. You know, more money goes into subsidizing not just military corporations, um, all the money, you know, the trillions of dollars that go into military companies. And but the more. fossil fuel industry, too. Right. I mean, virtually every pharmaceuticals, um, you know, energy companies, all big corporations are the lavish recipients of enormous amounts of tax dollars and subsidies and, you know, kinds of tax depreciation levels. I mean, everything the government does. So in some sense, you know, many people have said, we do have a, a, a strange, indeed, system. We have socialism for the rich. And we have capitalism for everybody else. In other words, everybody else is supposed to play by the market, everybody who's not rich, and basically prove that they can make it on their own without any help from anybody else, without any help from, you know, public provision. You know, you're just basically, you're just a, a taker. If well, they're, I'm looking for some, they're on the yeah. public dole, not the person who's on Obamacare, right. really. It's a... Yeah. Very um, large amount of money versus a small amount of money. Right. So uh, uh, we, Dr. Richard Nolthinius and I, are speaking with our bold interview guest, Dr. Charles Derber of Boston College. And you are listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7, 89.5, and 89.7 FM. Many Voices, One Station. I'm your host, Jill Cody. And stay tuned for the final uh, portion of the show. And then following it at 6 o'clock here on K-Squid, we'll have State of Mind, our monthly program hosted by Santa Cruz licensed psychotherapist Deborah Sloss. Nearly one in three adolescents will experience anxiety disorder by the age of 18. Today at 6, you'll hear from college student Elena Shane, who courageously shares her story of navigating severe anxiety since childhood. Together with her family and a service dog, she has learned about herself and developed skills to better manage her life. Also joining in is psychologist Sheila Siegel, providing information about teen anxiety symptoms, coping strategies, treatment approaches, and resources. It's coming up at 6 on State of Mind right here on K-Squid. And now back to Be Bold America. Now, in the last uh, segment of our time together, Dr. Derber, I usually ask what you have for us to keep doing, stop doing, and start doing. But I know uh, Rick has well, another question. Well, I wanted to make one one interesting point on that last uh, segment, and that is, uh, and that is that uh, there's a study done that showed 1,200 percent return on investment uh, by uh, for the for the oil companies uh, through their lobbying. They they actually get far more profit back by lobbying than they do by drilling, even. Right, absolutely. And, you know, just to try to end on a more positive note, when we talked about the rich are happy to take help from government, you know, the biggest system of welfare in America is the corporate welfare system. Um, And what that tells you is that rich people are very happy to kind of live by a kind of socialist value, which is that the government should be involved in helping them do what they're trying to do. So if you actually take that idea and say, well, if wealthy people are happy to be, you know, to to believe that the collectivity should be investing in them through our tax dollars, which we do lavishly, um, to allow corporations to become profitable, then why don't we expand that idea? And this is very much at the center of our book's solution in the last part of the book, is expanding that idea 
that society should be organized um, for people helping each other through, you know, and that means through collective ownership of the commons and collective, you know, the collective, you know, primal urge to be part of a community in which we feel safer and more secure because other people have our back. Now, the, the market philosophy of capitalism says, no, you have to be on your own fighting everybody else. Right, for, lift for up by your bootstraps, up. but you have to have right. boots for, first. <laughs> right, and the capitalists are sort of modeling in a, in a bizarre way the idea that what we really need is a system of collective help. I mean, we all get help in life, and we all get help from, and we're privileged by get from, you can't live socially without help from other people. Yeah. And in a good society, that help has to be um, institutionalized through collective institutions, including the government. Yes. So when, when Jill asked me, what's my definition of capitalism? It's in closing the commons and making sure that everything is operated through, you know, as a commodity on the market. And so the, the alternative, the, the solution to our problem, is to sort of come back to a commons and a kind of system where people recognize their interdependence and that they flourish when they embrace the fact that we all need help and that we all get help. And that just as government is providing enormous help for the, the richest among us, um, that money could be better used if it were spread out to help everybody. In other words, you build a public goods society where instead of simply trying to say that everybody should be selfish and just try to accumulate as much for yourself as possible, stuff your closet with as much as you can, um, the, the alternative is... And the Europeans go some distance in this direction, like the, the, the Danish, for example. Scandinavian countries, I, yeah, especially. Yeah, like I have a student from Copenhagen in, in my class. She goes to one of the best universities in Denmark. It's free. She gets free health care. She gets um, job security and job training. I mean, the Europeans have shown, even though they're not, a, obviously, a, despite what Bernie Sanders likes to say, they're not fully egalitarian or not, you know, they're private capitalist societies in many ways, but they, they sort of have institutionalized forms of this public goods idea that we need a commons where everybody is investing and getting back, you know, from the public, the things that we all need to survive and flourish and, you know, to care about each other. And so I don't think that the alternative, well, well, it's very hard to talk about capitalism and Americans have been, you know, in indoctrinated with this for a long time. I think there's a counter narrative that is very simple to talk about, which is, you know, that we all depend on each other and that we're all interdependent and that we, if we try to divorce ourselves from everybody else, you know, we become miserable. We're all kind of intuitively aware of that. And so we need to sort of take that kind of common sense, you know, feeling of fear of um, atomization and isolation and total selfishness and saying um, we can build and, you know, we already have institutions that can be the foundations for building from the ground up, you know, in local communities. I heard what you guys are talking about with your Santa Cruz um community, you know, leaders and climate activists and so forth. I mean, I think we have infrastructure on the ground and cultural possibilities for building this public goods um, kind of alternative. But um, as, is it Rich? Your name is Richard, is that right? Richard, or, yeah. Um, yeah. So as Richard was saying, 
maybe we have to be a little bit more combative. I mean, in the sense of asserting rather than simply capitulating to this idea that we're all best when we're just fighting for ourselves, that we assert, you know, forcefully, uh, combatively, and through, you know, challenge on the streets and, you know, in classrooms and in workplaces and so forth. You know, we're beginning to see masses of workers, you know, strike in, whether it's in Hollywood or United Auto Workers or in, you know, airliner stewardesses or whatever. We're beginning to see people coming together in the workplace. I mean, those kinds of possibilities are, are always there. And when, you know, as the situation becomes more and more extreme, um, in the, you know, which it will, based on the dynamics we discussed yeah. in the book, it becomes more possible to see people coming together, partly out of desperation and need, and partly just out of some common sense recognition of waking up and saying, wait a minute, this is not the way life should be led, and coming, you know, toward a different way of living. We need a lurching revolution, which we hope, of course, will be peaceful, but um, it's going to probably have to be led by the young. Maybe there's a Green New Deal, you know, revolution that begins small and locally, but it's, you know, it's being talked about in Congress, and maybe, you know, you know, how do you fund a Green New Deal? We've had a New Deal. It had green elements to it well, back when the Depression had. You could have, you know, you can fund it by taking the trillions of dollars that are currently in philanthropic corporate foundations, which are basically tax evasion um, structures, and take that money as well as all the money feeding in from the military and diverting it into a massive green jobs and green infrastructure publicly-based investment program. You know, Biden started to do a little bit of this before he got knocked away from that by the Republican Congress. Um, but I think that idea of a kind of two-for-one solution, that if you, um, if you find a way to, to tell, you know, coal miners in West Virginia that there's a way of their living a good life, um, if their government comes in, as it's beginning to do in West Virginia, and train them, sort of European style, where you can't lay a worker off without training them for a new job, train these young coal miners, with, you know, three generations of coal mining, in renewable energy jobs, which are now going into West Virginia. And you, you show people that there, you can really have a solution to this, you know, $400 in your out kind of um, precariousness that Jill mentioned earlier. Um, but you've got to show people that there's a way to do it where you're not risking every, you know, where you're not, you know, you know, just simply sinking into poverty if you reject the corporate, you know, mold that you're being presented with. And this all seems so is, obvious. And I wonder, yeah. how do we shoehorn out the people who are who've built the system and are tailoring it right now to be iron tight? I mean, I, I worry that our final days of democracy might be around the corner. <laughs> it's a massive, you guys do it on the air. It's a massive educational program. I try to do it through my writing and teaching. And it's a, it's a revolutionary project, and we don't have a lot of time. Um, if, if Trump wins in 2024, um, we are going to lose most of our rights oh and God. freedoms that we have, whatever we have, we have left. And so, I mean, I just think, you know, you need to recognize that there's always the possibility of change, and you just got to lean into it. I mean, I work with young people, and I see a lot of reason for hope. And, um, you know, the war, for example, in Gaza right now is mobilizing, you know, really 
students who I've never seen mobilized before really activated, just horrified by what they see as a kind of crushing of, you know, a kind of holocaust of, um, you know, people who are being squeezed into a life without any hope of, you know, of, of oxygen, you know, food, yeah. fuel, anything. Dr. Durber, um, but, uh, yeah. you know, I wish we had another hour. Uh, both yeah. Rick and I, thank you for being our bold and impressive guest today. Thank you for an hour of your valuable time. Uh, I really you so appreciate you being here, and I hope you come back when you've got your book on capitalism and democracy is done. Oh, thank you much so much, Jill. I'm sorry to talk so much. I just tried to get a lot in, but um, oh, no. you guys are great. And, um, you are I, a fountain of information on a subject that we need to start talking about as we started the great. show with. As Jill has well, accused me of, I am dense and intense, and so are you, and that's a good thing. <laughs> well, thank you both Thank you. Much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. What's up next on Be Bold America? Please join us on Sunday, December 17th for Corporate BS, Exposing Lies and Half-Truths That Protect Profit, Power, and Wealth in America. From praising the health benefits of cigarettes to moralizing on the character-building qualities of child labor, rich corporate overlords have gone to astonishing, often morally indefensible lengths to defend their profits. Since the dawn of capitalism, they've told the same lies over and over to explain why their bottom line is always more important than the greater good. You say you want to raise the federal minimum wage? Why? You'll only make things worse for the very people you want to help. Should we hold polluters accountable for the toxins they're dumping in our air and water? No, the free market will save us. It's always the same tired threats and finger-pointing and a concentrated campaign to keep wealth and power in the hands of the wealthy and powerful. In their eye-popping book, Corporate BS, written by billionaire Nick Hanauer, journalist Joan Walsh, and Donald Cohen, the founder of In the Public Interest. We will have the honor to speak with Donald Cohen in identifying the pernicious propaganda for the wealthiest 1%, and he will teach you on how to fight back. So please join me for Corporate BS, Exposing Lies and Half-Truths that Protect Profit, Power, and Wealth in America on Be Bold America, Sunday, December 17th at 5 p.m., I want to give a special thank you to today's Be Bold America's program engineer, who is also our station's program director, Howard Feldstein. Stay tuned for State of Mind and Deborah Schloss. My name is Jill Cody. And this is Richard Nalthanius. And thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start. <laughs>